Good morning, and welcome to Journey. We're glad you're here today. I think I see and feel warmth coming in, even from the outside today. Isn't that awesome that we're going to experience some good, good news? I'm glad you're here to join us, whether in person or online, and we're going to continue today in a series, in fact, conclude a series that we've been in for a few weeks called uh, uh, By the Book, and today we're going to talk about how the Bible is more than words. But before we do that, though, I brought a little um, object lesson for you I want to share with you. And uh, this was something that, I don't know if you'll know what this is or not, but uh, there, that is uh, lard, lard. You know, um, if you were to ask people today, is lard good for you? Probably most people would say, no, lard is not. But you know, uh, lard was used for centuries for cooking. Our ancestors used lard all the time, and, uh, and they did fine, you know. Uh, But uh, before you judge lard too harshly, because our world does today pretty harshly, uh, let me tell you some facts about lard that you never wanted to know, or you didn't know, all right? Uh, First of all, lard has no carbs. It's a plus, right? Lard also uh, is dairy-free. Now, it does have some fat in it. It comes from fat. Well, you know, you need some fats in your diet, right? And lard has zero trans fat and less saturated fat than butter does. And lard is a source of vitamin D. And there's nothing at all like real lard if you're going to fry some food or if you're going to make a pie crust or make biscuits, nothing more better than that, right? Now, why does lard have such a bad reputation today? Why has it had a bad rep? Well, that's the rest of the story I wanted to share with you. In the early 1900s, Procter & Gamble, they, had, um, they were using cotton, textiles, making clothes. That's what cotton is for, right? It's not a food substance. But they had a part of the cotton plant that they didn't use. It was the cotton seed. And so they decided, you know, we need to find a use for cotton seed. And so they decided to, to determine uh, other ways to do it. And they pressed it and they got the oil out of it, out of cotton seed. And it was nasty and disgusting and not a food subject, uh, substance at all. They decided, you know what, we're going to make food out of this. And so they discovered that if they took the oil and processed it through hydrogenation, it could be used to cook food. Now, that's a really simple process. I don't know if you know how that's done or not, but basically you just take it and you add hydrogen to your food. Hydrogen, which is a gas, not very good for you. And then you also add nickel or platinum to it as well and process it through that. And that is what creates today what was called, or what came to replace lard, and it was called Crisco. I bet you thought Crisco was healthy, right? But that's where Crisco actually came from. Now, to make it sell, they spent more marketing dollars uh, condemning lard and promoting Crisco than any other product in history. And by the way, hydrogenated food today is horrible for you. It increases the risk of heart disease, stroke, and possibly even of cognitive disorders like dementia and Alzheimer's. Is it a wonder that maybe we're seeing that more today because we have more hydrogenated food? So lard took a whipping, right? But lard had another butchering a few years later during World War II. They used the oil from another plant called the rapeseed growing up in Canada. This plant was used... The oil from the seed was used to lubricate the ships and their machinery. So when the oil was over, they had this huge industry producing this oil that they used to, to, to lubricate the ships, but they had no other use for it. So they decided to make it a food substance. And so they refined it, they bleached it, they hydrogenated it, 
and they deodorized it using harsh chemicals, and they created an oil that could be sold that was better than lard, and they called it canola oil from Canada oil, can oil, where that came from. I, thought you thought, I bet you thought that was healthy, right? And by the way, canola can also be used to replace diesel and also an ingredient in plastic and tires and margarine as well, right? Now, my lard's not looking too bad today, is it, right? <laughs> Starting to think differently about my lard, right? Medical research is now discovering that lard is not the devil it was made out to be for so many years. In fact, uh, it, it's really good for you, you know, and it's not the root cause of cardiovascular disease. Now, by the way, this is not a public service announcement. I am not selling my lard. It just got more valuable to me as I was talking now. But I wanted to use that to just prove something to you. And that is that what people market isn't always true. What people say isn't always true. That the tried and true usually proves itself to truly be just that tried and true. And that brings us back to the Bible. You know, today seculars try to convince us and tell us that the Bible is outdated, that the Bible is intolerant, and they don't believe that mankind can have a set of permanent rules or values such as taught in the Bible. Secular humanism teaches us that there are no objective or absolute truths defining right and wrong, and in fact, they seek to replace the tried and true word of God with lies and useless substitutes that are not good for us. But today as Christians, we believe that the Bible is the literal Word of God and that it covers all of life. And so in the last few weeks, we've been trying to uh, teach you, to encourage you, and challenge you to love the Bible as a truth, that which has stood the test of time, that which is credible, that which is reliable, and needs to be the guideline for our lives. Today we're going to be talking about the fact that the Bible is more than words, much more than words, and the power of the Word. You know, there are 800,000 or so words in the Bible, but even though there are many words, and it's an imposing book, you know, for a lot of people, it's like war and peace. You, you, you'd like to read it, but it's just so intimidating, you don't even know where to start. And hopefully, we've helped you understand where to start in reading the Bible and, and what the Bible is really all about. But I want you to know that these words that we have are more than words. It literally is our life. It is our breath. And so in many ways, the Bible is the breath of God. You know, it's kind of interesting that we can live without food, they say, for about a month. Never tried that. Don't intend to. That we can live without water for about a week. But you cannot live a day or even an hour without breath, right? And I almost wonder sometimes if that isn't why many Christians are spiritually weak or even dying because they're not receiving the breath of God, the life of God through His Word. Because unfortunately, a lot of people who have several Bibles in their home probably just do not read the Bible. So I want to encourage you and remind you again that the most important and powerful thing you can do to grow at whatever stage you are in your life with, uh, with Christ is to read the Bible. It's the most important thing you can do. So what does it mean when we say, though, that, that the Scripture is the breath of God? Well, it's not just me saying that. Obviously, the Bible says it about itself. In 2 Timothy 3, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
Now, we touched on this the first week. If that scripture sounds familiar from a few weeks ago, it's because I used that to establish the foundation of the credibility of the Bible. But I want to look at it a little bit deeper there, because there's some truth there that maybe we overlook or that the world has glossed over that I want to pull out of it. First of all is the first word of the verse that says all. Notice all. All means every word of it. Today, there are some people who say that some of the Bible is true for the day, but much of the Bible or some of the Bible is outdated and irrelevant. And so because of that, that gives them the permission to pick and choose some of the Bible. But if you say that anything is the Bible isn't true today, you would just attack the credibility of the whole Bible. Now, obviously, some of it was written, as we talked about last week, to God's people in the Old Testament in a different relationship God had with them to the Jewish nation. And we had to determine context of the Bible. But it's a huge mistake to ever say the Bible isn't true or to undermine the overall truth of God's Word. Because once you do that, you have to ask yourself, where do you stop in that? Where do you stop? Instead, all means all. It means every bit of it is inspired by God. So all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired. You know, literally, that means it is the breath of God. It's kind of interesting, the word inspire and expire. I don't know if you ever thought about that a lot. Even though breathing is important to us, we don't think about the terms around it. But inspire means to breathe or an idea or a motivation into a person. In other words, you see someone do something, and you say, well, you know, you really inspired me to stop eating hydrogenated food. Or you really inspired me to get in better shape. Or you inspired me to try that. Or go to college or whatever it is. You inspired me to do that. You motivate someone to do something. Whenever we receive a challenge or an example, we say, wow, I want to I do that for me. Well, the Bible says that the scripture was given to us as a challenge or a motivation. And, and Second Peter describes this. He says, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as if they, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God inspired holy men to sit down and write the Bible to give us an account of what they had actually seen and what they had heard and what God wants us to know. So God inspired them to even do it. You know, if you're going to write a book, you got to have an inspiration from somewhere. If you're going to, you know, I've heard of people say, I'm going to ask my parents to write down their life and their experiences because that's inspiring to the rest of the family. But somebody has to say, you need to do that because we don't naturally just think of that probably. So these holy men, I think God actually spoke to them and said, you need to write down what you have seen, what you have heard, or write these things down, what God wants you to know. And then as they wrote, God breathed into them his word as they wrote in their own style and their own language. Remember, each writer had their own skill and their own style of writing. And the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek because those were the languages of the day. But they were inspired to write down what God told them to say. Inspire means to breathe in and expire needs to breathe out. So they breathed in God's word as he was breathing it out, and they wrote it down in their own words, and they expire it to us today. Today, we should let the word of God breathe its truth into us and inspire us to live holy lives. So if we view the Bible as the breath of God, it's a living thing in and out, into our life, out into the lives of others, and in the way we live our life. 
See, the Bible is there for us to admire, to be inspired by. The Bible's not there for us to critique or judge. Ever heard anybody say, well, I don't believe that. Or I know what the Bible says, but those are the most infuriating words in the world to me. I hate to hear people say that. It is supreme ignorance and arrogance to pick and choose what you call truth. You don't have the right, and I don't have the right to judge the word. The word judges us. And do you notice here that Second Peter said that the Bible was written as people were inspired by who? By the Holy Spirit, right? You don't mess with the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit and his influence and words. Jesus said, and so I tell you, every sin, of, of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So we've always known or heard that the unforgivable sin is to speak against the Holy Spirit, blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit is the author and inspiration of the Bible, then questioning or undermining the Bible is probably the most dangerous thing that you could ever do. We should have a holy fear and respect of that. You know, there are people who are very blatant in their criticism of the Bible, saying the Bible isn't relevant today or the Bible is an outdated book. And let me just say this, because I know this goes beyond our church and goes out into uh, Facebook land. If your church or some spiritual leader talks like that, run as fast as you can and as far as you can. I never understand how people who are seeking to follow God's will would stay in a church that's compromising the Word of God. I never understand that. It's my challenge to you and to us to always be faithful. So there are some who are blatant, but there are others who are more subtle, and they say things like this. Everybody knows that there are mistakes and contradictions in the Bible. Ever heard anybody? Everybody, everybody knows that. No, not everybody knows that. That's not true. If you, just because you speak it doesn't mean it's true, right? When someone says that, ask them what the mistakes and contradictions are, because I will almost guarantee you they have no idea what they are. They're not a scholar, or they know that's not true. It's an excuse for themselves. Saying things like that leaves the impression that we can't really believe any of the Bible because some of it is wrong. And then not just stand up to what the Bible said. You know, we've talked about archaeology. We've talked about history. We've talked about other proofs, the manuscripts and everything else. Let me throw another proof to you today called the, the three laws of logic. Have you ever heard of that? I'd never heard of this until so I began to study this, the laws of logic. And maybe I'm not a logical person. But three laws of logic are rational statements that are universally true, no matter what you're talking about. Not about the Bible, but everything in life. Three laws of logic. First law of logic is the law of identity, which says that something is what it is and is not what it is not. It took a lot of thinking to come up with that law, right? But something is what it is and it's not what it's not. The second law uh, of logic is the law of non-contradiction, which states that something cannot be itself and not itself at the same time and in the same sense. Second law of logic. The third law of logic is the law of excluded middle, which says that statements are either true or false. Those are the three laws of logic. Laws like this and other logical laws form the undergirding foundation of rational thought. So if you have a conversation with people you got to start somewhere, and many people start with the laws of logic. Well, here's another way of saying the second law of logic that relates to the Bible. 
There can be two expressions of the same event, and as long as one does not exclude the possibility of the other, there is no contradiction, and both of them can be true. Does that make sense? That's a really simple statement there. But this premise and this law of logic explains why one author in the Bible will say something and another author might say it differently. Ever heard anybody say, well, you know, one of the gospel writers says this and the other says that, but the second law of logic says, hey, if they don't contradict each other, they can both be true. And the way that this could be understood, if you were to witness an accident On one side, your account of it would probably be different than another witness on the other side who saw the same accident, but you saw it from different angles. And and if you put those accounts together, if you're both telling the truth, which you would be, they would both be true. And they would help the police figure out what really happened because you had two perspectives on it. And that's why we have to study the Bible in the right context so we can understand the message God has for us. Because we have to use, we can use human reasoning and logic and discover most of it, but it does not disprove the Bible. A lot of people approach the Bible with skepticism, trying to find holes or something to exploit and undermine the whole message of the Bible. But you know what? We don't have the right to do that. As I said before, that's arrogance to think we can do that because the Word of God is eternal. Critics have come and gone, and the words still stand as truth. Jesus said this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. My words will never pass away. God's word is eternal. From the beginning, it will never pass away. We'll have the word of God, I believe, in heaven. It is eternal. So instead of critiquing the Bible, looking for loopholes, trying to find justification for the way we want to live our lives, let's accept the Bible's truth. It is the breath and the word of God. It is much more than words. So let's take the advice of James chapter 1. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Another way of of saying this is be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Be a doer and not just a reader of the word. Let correct, let the Bible correct and transform your life. And the last statement, it says, you will be blessed in what you do. You will be blessed, you will be happy, joyful, prosper if you let the Bible transform your life. Well, let me give you one more scripture in this. And I got to be honest, this is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. I love this scripture because it is so vivid and it's uh, the, the mental picture, the visual picture is just amazing. And see, Ezekiel 37, and you probably read this, but, but I think it tells us the power of the breath of God, the Word of God. And I got to be honest, I, I've read this many times. I don't know if I've ever thought about it in this perspective, but listen to this. Ezekiel said, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. And then you will know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied (coughs) as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then the Bible said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army. I don't know if you ever read that before, but that is such a visual picture, isn't it? And I believe it because it's in the Bible. I think it happened, all right? Like I believe all the Bible is. But but what I love about it is it's a demonstration of the power of the breath of God. Listen to what happened here. Ezekiel is prophesying. What is he doing? He is preaching to these dry bones. He is talking to them. He's breathing God's truth into them. And we see four things that happens here. First of all, the breath of the Word of God brings understanding. Ezekiel was asked by God, can these bones live again? Ezekiel said, I don't know. I have no idea, but you do. The Word of God gives us understanding. You and I don't have to know everything in order for it to be true. We don't have to understand everything. In fact, we're dealing with a God that is beyond our understanding. Ever read something in the Bible, wonder how it could possibly be true? Do not judge the Bible by your own ability to understand everything in it. You read it, you believe it by faith, and then you will start to understand and trust God for what you can't understand. The Word of God gives us understanding when we have faith and we're committed to it. Secondly, the breath of the Word of God brings order to life. Ezekiel was preaching, must have been futile. If you've ever been a preacher, you know sometimes you don't always get the response from people, but I've never preached to a pile of bones. Probably be even less than the worst the worst uh, responsive congregation. All right. Not you guys, others, I'm sure. All right. But he's preaching this pile of dead bones, a valley full of bones that are scattered and dry and they've been dead a long time. But as he began again to speak, the bones begin to come together. You can kind of see them start sliding, you know, here and there. And they're creating whole skeletons. In my mind, I get this impression that they're standing up, you know, they're just kind of boom, boom, just kind of bones are just flying into pace. And, And then all of a sudden these skeletons are standing. Maybe they were just laying down. I don't know. But they were coming together, and it brought order to life. The Word of God brings order to our life. Thirdly, the breath of the Word of God brings strength. Because at this point, there's nothing there but a skeleton. But as he began to preach and continued to speak and prophesy, he said, I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. Without the Word of God, we are powerless. We have no strength. We are weak. And then fourthly, the Word of God can bring life because to this point, they're complete bodies, but they have no breath in them. I continued to preach, and so I prophesied, and as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. He he spoke the Word of God into them, and suddenly life returned, and this valley was now full of a valley full of a vast army of soldiers, very much alive. See, God's word brings life. Without his word, we are dead. 
Without Christ, we are spiritually dead. Without the Word into our life on a regular basis, we're going to be weak and spiritually dying. But God's Word brings life, and our life comes into order as we receive eternal life. And that's the power of God's Word in our lives. That's the power of it. I try to breathe out the Word of God. You know, when someone teaches or, or speaks, they're expiring or breathing out the Word that they breathed in. You know, uh, we, we have to study, we have to prepare, and then we breathe it out. But, but I can't breathe for you all week. And you can't live on one breath a week. You know, so I'm glad you come, and I appreciate you being attentive and responsive, but you got to breathe it for yourself. You got to breathe it for yourself, and I need you, be, you need to breathe it daily. You can't live on one breath of air a week, or one breath a day, or one breath an hour, right? I want to encourage you to see the Bible as your lifeline, as surely as if you were underwater. I, I hate water. I'm just not a water guy. And I, I, hate, I hate, would hate to be under. I could never be in a submarine. I could never be a diver and have a lifeline. But I want you to think about is if you were underwater and your only source of breath or air was coming from above and a line that came down to you, and that's how you survived. Because you can't live outside or be beyond the lifeline. And that's what the Word of God is to us. And when we see it that way, we're going to value it. We're going to protect it. We're going to defend it. We're going to study it. We're going to live it. And it's going to transform our lives. That would be my word of encouragement to you today. To view the Bible in that way because I know what the Word can do when people receive it. And it changes their heart. And you say, well, I'm already a Christian. Yes, but the way that you sustain life. It's through a, a steady diet of God's Word, hearing His truth. Whether you listen to it, whether you read it, whatever it may be, you've got to have God's Word coming into your life on a regular basis. Because I will tell you, it brings life. And if you're here or maybe listening and you don't have Jesus as your life, then I would love to have that conversation with you because without Him, you are spiritually dead and separated from God. But only through Christ do we find our hope of life eternal, or even life here, abundant life. I'd love to have that conversation. Get in contact with me. I'd love to sit down and talk to you about that.